0: It's a bright, clear day on the outskirts of Bakhmut in the east of Ukraine. In a video released by the Ukrainians, you can see the soldiers of their third assault brigade as they're about to storm Russian positions. It clearly worked. Over the past week, the Russians have been losing ground. Russia is dealing with setbacks. Ukraine's deputy defence minister says Ukrainian forces have captured more than 10 Russian positions near Bakhmut. In Moscow, the blame game has already begun the man in charge of the infamous Wagner Group seems to be turning on Putin and the Russian army. And then there was this.
1: Prigozhin, the head of that private Russian military group that is fighting on behalf of Russia alongside the Russian military in Ukraine, reached out to commanders in Ukraine. Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, reportedly made an offer to Ukrainian forces back in January that he would give up Russian troop positions. This would be in exchange for Kiev pulling its troops from the area surrounding the embattled city of Bakhmut. If this offer was actually made without knowledge of the Kremlin, uh, that could result in uh, quite a sticky situation.
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm Manvin Rana. Today, trouble at the Kremlin.
2: I'm Mark Galliotti. I head up the Russia-focused consultancy, Mayak Intelligence, and I'm also an honorary professor at University College London School of Salonic and East European Studies.
0: Mark, everyone recently has sort of been watching Ukraine, just waiting for the spring offensive to begin. But meanwhile, in Russia, it's been quite a grim fortnight for the Kremlin. There's real pressure on Putin coming from within. Just talk us through his long list of troubles, starting with videos published just over a week ago by the Wagner boss, Yevgeny
1: Prigozhin. These are the guys from Wagner who died today. The blood is still fresh. Film them all. Prigozhin is the distinctly thuggish
2: Man behind the Wagner mercenary group. I mean, essentially, he is a businessman who happens to run a mercenary army, which may sound perverse, but that's the nature of modern Russia. He thought that he was going to provide this city of Bakhmut as a, a trophy to the boss, especially in time for the 9th of May, which is Victory Day in Russia, and in some ways, the kind of the high holy day of Putinism. And so he's angry, but he's also looking for excuses for the failure to take
1: Bakhmut. Now listen to me. These are someone's fathers and someone's sons. And those people who are not giving us any ammunition will be in hell.
2: He stood in front of a pile of dead bodies of Wagner fighters and, if I may be slightly more circumspect, said to Defence Minister Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov, where
1: is my effing ammunition? We have a 70% shortage of ammunition. Shoigu, Gerasimov, where is the ammunition? Look at them. They came here as volunteers. They're dying because of you.
2: He's angry because he doesn't feel that the regular military give him either enough respect or the ammunition he needs. He's angry with Putin for not holding the military's feet to the fire to ensure that, basically saying that the deaths of these men was on the head of the defence minister and, and the military high command. You know, this is a man who certainly does not feel the need to pull his verbal punches. Because in some ways, that's one of the only ways he's got to get through to Putin. I mean, just tell us a bit about his relationship with Putin over the years. The two men met back in the 1990s when Putin was deputy mayor of St. Petersburg and Prigozhin was having come out of prison. It's worth noting he is an ex-con. But he was basically setting up a catering business. And since then, Prigozhin has prospered and become very rich. Not because he's especially close to Putin. The two men are not friends or anything like that. But because he identified a role as being one of the Kremlin's go-to business people. When they wanted something doing, Prigozhin was one of the people who was willing to do it. And that meant whatever. Providing catering for the armed forces or running troll farms to interfere in the American elections in 2016 or indeed running a mercenary army. That means that Prigozhin is in some ways a bit like a shark, in that he can't stop swimming or else he drowns. He's not like one of Putin's close cronies, who can just rely on the fact they're friends with the boss and the boss will look after them. Putin expects people like Prigozhin to constantly show their value. And the problem for Prigozhin is, frankly, he overplayed his hand, and now really he's trying desperately to avoid the blame.
0: I mean, it was a a no-holds-barred rant and figures who you don't often hear being criticised in public. Just remind us a little bit about who Shoigu and Gerasimov are.
2: Well, Shoigu, he is, I mean, he's the defence minister now. He's actually a really veteran political figure. He actually has a political career that goes back to before Putin. This is a man who is regarded as a safe pair of hands. Then Gerasimov is the top soldier. He's essentially a tank general. And in particular... It's clear that right at the beginning, in the last days before the invasion, when the final plans were being put together, Gerasimov was involved. And that was the moment where his job should require that he'd have been the one to say to Putin, this is not actually going to work the way it looks. But no, he kept quiet. And in the process, he allowed the Russian military to get involved in this meat grinder of a war. But what it comes down to ultimately is, look, this is how the Putin system works. Putin basically keeps his position by practicing divide and rule. He sets all his various courtiers off against each other, creates institutions with overlapping responsibilities. So, in some ways, they're too busy clawing each other down to ever be able to conspire against him. Now, that works or has worked politically to keep Putin in power for over 20 years. But when that model is transposed to the battlefield, it's incredibly dysfunctional. And it means there Mm. isn't really a single command. So you actually have competing barons on the battlefield. And as far as Prigozhin is concerned, he's in a struggle for power and above all, the credit for what little victories may be made.
0: And after that first video came out, on the same day, there's a second one. And clearly his anger hasn't been dampened. Prigozhin is threatening to walk away from the war, to take Wagner from the front line and leave Ukraine.
1: I'm officially informing the Defence Minister, Chief of the General Staff, and the Supreme Commander-in-Chief Putin, that my guys will not be taking useless, unjustified losses in Bakhmut without ammunition.
0: Just tell us whether that would have been something that actually worried the Kremlin, hearing that threat. Could he have pulled out?
2: I mean, actually, Wagner doesn't have the strategic mobility. You know, when it moves around, it moves around because the the regular military fly them or, or whatever else. I mean, short of just simply walking eastwards, there's not really much Wagner can do. And, and does this scare the Kremlin? When it comes down to it, this is a man, Prigozhin, whose entire business empire depends on the favour of the Kremlin. And if he pulled Wagner back from the front line, that would be seen, in my opinion, as treachery. Putin does not have any time for traitors. As far as he's concerned, enemies you fight with, but maybe someday you'll be able to make some kind of a peace deal with them. But traitors, you can do nothing with them but wipe them out. And I think Prigozhin
1: understands this. A combat order came yesterday, which clearly stated, important, if we leave our positions, it will be regarded as treason against the motherland. That was the message to us. So I I suspect that he will huff and he will puff,
2: but I don't think he really can afford to actually pull his troops out.
0: It's so interesting. And you can see that in the videos, because whilst he's shouting abuse at Shoigu and Gerasimov, he stops just short of criticising Putin.
2: Yes. Well, I mean, I should say that in one of his more recent videos, there was a passing reference
1: to granddad. Instead of using shells to kill enemies and save our soldiers, they're killing our soldiers, and the grandfather thinks it's fine. And how can we win this war if, by chance, and I'm just speculating here, it turns out that this grandfather is a complete moron?
2: Now, granddad has become a frankly rather dismissive slang term for Putin. Now Prigozhin is beginning to inch closer to actually criticising Putin, which is a very high-risk strategy, and I think it's probably a mark of his desperation and also his anger.
0: I mean, that really is remarkable, It's hugely high risk. And then we get a whole new complexion on this story at the start of this week when The Washington Post published this expose, and they claim that Prigozhin had actually gone to the Ukrainians and offered information about where Russian troops were moving. Just tell us a bit about that story and also how that will have gone down in Moscow.
2: We have to start with the caution that these are unconfirmed intelligence reports, but working on the assumption that that they're accurate. Essentially he was saying to them, look, I will give you valuable, actionable intelligence about the locations and plans of Russian military units. If, in effect, you give me Bakhmut, he was basically willing to bargain away the overall campaign so long as he actually got his own victory. Now, this is the kind of thing which, frankly, in any society would be something of a career killer. In Russia, it might be more than just a career killer. I can't help but feel that this pretty much ensures that he is not going to prosper and he may well end up behind bars or worse.
0: What do you think he's playing at? What is his long game? Does he have ambitions of his own?
2: I don't think he has grand ambitions as as some people have suggested that he wants to be defence minister or even president or whatever. But the main thing is this, look, he is involved in two wars. One of them is clearly with the Ukrainians. The other one is with all his rivals back home, including Defence Minister Shoigu. So in some ways, he is trying to contrast Wagner as the hard-bitten professionals who can actually get things done with the, you know, frankly, very pointless, bureaucratic, badly led, badly disciplined regular troops. And in part, this is also an alibi. He clearly had promised the boss, he had promised Putin that he would deliver Bakhmut. There is still no victory. He's trying to basically present the regular troops of the defence ministry as his alibi.
0: Is it bad for Putin if he isn't seen to be doing something about him, something to control Prigozhin?
2: There is a considerable potential for for real problems for Putin here. The thing is this, we have to realise that for all his bare-chested, macho public persona. Putin actually makes decisions very slowly and reluctantly, prefers not to actually take tough decisions if he can put them off. This is one of those situations where actually it's very hard for him not to actually move. And if he doesn't, it will be perceived as weakness. I mean, it's worth mentioning, and I think there is a, a pervasive growing sense that Putin is no longer up to or at least not even doing his job. If he continues to arm um and ah, if he feels, well, I can't have Wagner without Prigozhin, which is false, but nonetheless he may believe it, and therefore doesn't actually act in a decisive way, well, he might keep Wagner on side. But on the other hand, it will absolutely speak to these concerns within the Russian elite that at the moment, at the point of the greatest risk, and the greatest threat to post-Soviet Russia, the man at the tiller, Is frankly no longer the man they need.
0: And Putin's problems don't end there. Coming up, what we know and what we don't know about the attempts to assassinate him. That's in just a moment. It's been a rough fortnight for Putin. On the one hand, he's got these video tirades from the head of the Wagner group coming out all over social media and being talked about. He's got a fairly dysfunctional defence team. And he's got a war that's not really going to plan. And then, to add to his troubles, a week before Victory Day, when he really wants to be able to show the Russian people how well things are going, instead, footage emerges of two drones flying into the Kremlin.
1: Russia is accusing Ukraine of attacking the Kremlin with two drones. The Russian government overnight.
0: says it stopped an assassination attempt targeting President Vladimir Putin. It says two drones were used in the attack on the presidential residence inside the Kremlin.
2: Well, it was a thoroughly unexpected sight. One night you have one drone that gets very close to the Senate building, which is one of the large buildings inside the Kremlin. It's worth noting the Kremlin is, after all, this kind of fortified complex of buildings, not just a single one. And then about 12 minutes later, a second one comes and explodes on or just above the Golden Dome of the Senate building. And this really shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen because the Kremlin is meant to be surrounded by a phenomenal rings of defences, radars to pick up any incoming aircraft, air defense missiles to shoot them down, jamming to make sure that basically any command signals would also not be able to get through, even a GPS spoofing system, which actually, as I know from experience, you try and find a direction and you're anywhere near the Kremlin, and it tells you you're at Vanukova Airport, 25 kilometers <laughs> really? away. It was the bane for anyone who tried to use taxi hailing services anywhere near the building. But anyway, all of those reasons mean that this should be impossible. And yet it happens twice.
0: Um, Mark, when these drones hit the Kremlin, where was Putin?
2: Well, according to Dmitry Peskov, his press spokesman, Putin was actually at uh, his out-of-town, out-of-Moscow dacha, but really a palace. In practice, we don't know for sure. What we do know, though, is that Putin these days especially, very, very rarely and quite reluctantly actually bothers going into the Kremlin himself. And the interesting thing is, look, a lot of people say, oh, well, this was a false flag operation, a pretext by the Kremlin to escalate.
0: So the, the Russians doing it to themselves,
1: effectively. Yeah, exactly. I don't think there was any sort of a defer- of an offence on the Kremlin, no attack on the Kremlin.
0: In fact... Just last week, Times Radio spoke to a former captain in Russia's special forces, Boris Volodarsky, who said exactly
1: that. Most probably that was organised by the Kremlin itself to show the Russian people that they are in danger and they should be united around the current government and, of course, the national leader, who is Mr Putin.
2: But the Kremlin was clearly caught off guard. They didn't, for example, put out the video of the attacks, which had gone viral on social media anyway, in their news broadcasts. You had articles in state-controlled or state-affiliated press very quickly saying this is actually an attempt to make us overreact. So, look, if I had to put money on it, I would say it was most likely to be the Ukrainians who did this as a very political gesture, just before Victory Day, to make the point that, look, we can reach out even into the fortified heart of Putin's state. Nowhere should consider itself to be safe.
0: And it's more effective, I think, than we realize. We haven't focused so much on these little attacks that Ukraine is managing to do in Russia. I mean, just tell us a bit more about how they're doing it, because it can't be easy for the Ukrainians to be able to go in. You know, we've, we've heard of incidents in the Crimea, but also in Russian territory close to the Ukrainian border. Just last Wednesday, you know, we heard about two separate drone attacks just over the border, trying to blow up Russian military facilities. Tell us how they're managing.
2: I mean, really, there's there's three different ways that they're bringing this war into Russia. So there are the drone attacks. Beyond that, we have some cases which seem to be very sort of carefully and sophisticated sabotage operations carried out by the Ukrainian intelligence services. And these are particularly aimed at what we would think of as kind of high-value political targets, arson attacks on draft offices, bombings of freight trains, you know, always sort of quite carefully geared to minimize the risk of civilian casualties and also attempts to, and successful attempts to kill a whole variety of cheerleaders from the war, like the military blogger Tatarsky, who was killed some time back.
1: Vladimir Tatarsky was the prominent pro-Putin blogger, had over half a million followers on Telegram. He died in the explosion. It was 15, now it's 16 injured posts on his blog.
2: And then the weekend after the drone attack, a car bomb that almost killed a writer and militant by the name of Zakhar Priliepin, who had actually commanded forces in the Donbass. But other than that, we've heard these extraordinary cases of particularly the sort of attacks like firebombing a local military commissariat office or whatever, Mm. in which actually it was just people like pensioners who have essentially been conned or blackmailed into doing it over the phone or over the Internet.
0: When you say sort of blackmailed, what are they made to do? How does that work?
2: Well, this is largely based on research by MediaZona, which is a Russian but anti-Putin investigative journalist outfit. But what they did is they looked into a whole bunch of court cases of these kind of, you know, smaller scale and more basic attacks and found that a large number of them were carried out by pensioners who scarcely really knew exactly what they were doing. And in some cases, it's because they were contacted by people claiming to be members of the security agencies in Russia and saying that you have to do this. Or in other cases, precisely that people, for example, you know, had their savings stolen by hackers and then were contacted by the hackers and said, look, if you want your money back, then you're going to have to carry out this particular act. Because in, in many cases, after all, the people who then do the firebombing, they don't try and run away. They don't have any kind of political manifesto. They're often actually supportive of the war. They just find themselves in a position in which they're forced into this particular sort of dangerous path. The balance of probabilities seems to suggest that this is an orchestrated campaign and it's an orchestrated campaign that comes from inside Ukraine to basically use Russians as proxy weapons against the Russian state.
0: That's remarkable.
2: Ukrainians have been phenomenally imaginative in their war. The Ukrainians have not just outfought the Russians, they clearly have consistently outthought them as well. So, you know, basically this is Kiev's other spring offensive, a covert offensive inside Russia to try and make sure that Russians begin to realise that this is not a war that's just happening somewhere over there, but one that is going to begin to hit them in their own home cities.
0: It does bring the war to people's doorsteps it does bring the threat even if it's not being matched by a big battle it does bring the threat closer to home how is that playing out we've often heard in the past the population is divided between the young people who are on social media and see information from outside Russia and the older people who are watching state TV basically who are getting the official messaging if you spend all your time watching state TV are you getting the same kind of Questions over the success of this war now. Are they starting to express doubts?
2: I mean, yes, there is a clearly a, a generational divide, as you say, though it's not quite so stark as sometimes assumed. And absolutely, state TV is now nothing but wall to wall toxic propaganda.
1: Everyday control centers, the presidential office in Kyiv and the government building should be turned into dust.
2: but the degree to which actually even the Russians who used to be glued to their TV sets and thus fair game for Kremlin talking points actually seem to be sort of basically coming away. I mean, at the end of 2021, 86% of Russians said that they watched state television. Now, even by the middle of last year, that had fallen to 65%. And the viewing figures for the kind of really over-the-top propaganda, kind of, I hesitate to call them political shows, that they're meant to be political shows, but they're more like what happens if Jerry Springer met Newsnight. You know, shouty people shouting even more extreme talking points at each other. Their actually viewing figures have fallen quite dramatically. Russians, they may not necessarily know what to believe, but they know when they're being lied to. They are able to hold two truths in their head, the official one that it's safe to say out in the streets and at work and what you maybe say to your family around the kitchen table. Hmm. And the divide between the two seems to be growing, despite the best efforts of the Kremlin's propagandists.
0: There are clearly problems within the administration itself, and Putin, for a change, looks a little bit like he's on the back foot. And with stories like this, I suppose it's always sensible to be cautious and to work out how much of what we're reporting is wishful thinking. I mean, for example, we have heard over the past year a lot of reports about Putin being very seriously ill, which don't seem to have amounted to much. What what do we know about his his health and his likelihood of, of still being in power in a, in a year's time?
2: Well, look, I mean, we know that he has certain health issues, particularly relating to his back. The extraordinary paranoid biosecurity provisions that were put around him during COVID suggest that there are some other deeper issues, maybe that his immune system is compromised, he can't take vaccines or whatever. So look, there are issues. But nonetheless, the the thought that he's got something that means he's going to be dead or incapacitated any day, we've been hearing these for years. I mean, you know, the number of times I've I heard, oh, within six months, Putin will be gone. I said, I think the first one I can think of that dates back to before the Crimean invasion of 2014. So, (laughs) you know, it's always six months and, and, and he'll be going.
0: But is he looking a little less secure? I mean, you watched that Victory Day speech. What did you make of it? How is he selling what seems to be a bit of a disaster to the Russian people? Do you think it's working?
2: I don't think it is working. Historically speaking, Putin, his strength of his regime has largely rested on three particular advantages. His legitimacy with the Russian population, his capacity to basically have huge amounts of money that he can throw at any particular problems that get in his way, and in the final analysis, his capacity to use violence, to coerce obedience. Well, if we look at those three, his legitimacy is clearly in decline, although the official approval ratings are still very high people know what they're expected to say when someone with a clipboard approaches them or someone rings them up at home, and they give the safe answer. But actually there's a whole variety of other indices that suggest that in fact they are increasingly disenchanted. The money is running out. Sanctions do not have quick effects, but sanctions plus the cost of the war do mean together that Russia's reserves are running low. So he can't just simply throw money at any problem. And even the security apparatus is, I think, because it's largely full of ruthless opportunists rather than loyal Putinists, beginning to have its doubts. We can see just those first concerns, which again does not mean that they're gonna turn against Putin, but do mean altogether that as and when there is some systemic crisis, some black swan event that we can't predict, but we know will happen at some point, collapse of the front lines in Ukraine, economic crisis at home, another Chernobyl, Putin being very ill, whatever it is. That's the point when people might well suddenly sort of think, hmm, actually, I'm not sure if Putin is the person to follow anymore. We saw in 1989 in Central Europe how all these communist regimes that look very tough, ruthless and in control can still collapse incredibly quickly. The point at which actually people decide that, Defection is safer than loyalty.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Professor Mark Gagliotti, veteran Russia watcher and author of Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. The producers today were James Shield, Max Kendix and Olivia Case. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find us. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.